0: Good morning, it's Thursday the 4th of January 2024 and this is Govindra Thiraj based in Mumbai, India's financial capital and right now in transit. I hope your year has begun well and yes I will cease and desist from such messaging this week and return to behaving normally. Meanwhile here go the top stories and themes for the day. The stock markets brace search for new triggers. Petrol pump prices may not drop for some time despite crude oil staying low. India's expanding market for healthcare from home testing equipment to diagnostics and hospital care. Why the Anglo Saxon model of business schools runs counter to India's family run business ethic. And Fidelity marks down Twitter investment by 72%. This is a core report with Govindraj Etiraj. The markets fall back. Stocks fell back further on Wednesday for the second day in a move that was fairly expected given global markets, including Wall Street, setting the tone. The BSE Sensex closed 536 points lower at 71,357 and the Nifty 50, on the other hand, shut shop at 21,517. That's down 148 points. Now, most institutional investors are now asking investors to move and are themselves moving funds into large caps or mostly stocks that are closer to at least descriptively speaking, the benchmark indices. That's the Nifty 50 and the BSE Sensex 30 and the stocks within them. Now, this also reduces the number of active targets, so to speak, which means valuations will be key once again, translated, they will be high or likely to be high. And let me tell you that even the most bullish investors in India are wary about high valuations. And even if they don't say much, which they may not for various reasons, their actions are quite demonstrative as has been the case in the now happening shift from small cap to large cap stocks. The market is, of course, waiting for fresh triggers, as it usually happens when it pauses after rising steadily for a while. Third quarter results are one trigger that the market is waiting for, which will start coming out by next week, particularly the IT companies who are usually the first to go. And, of course, further smoke signals on how the U.S. Federal Reserve will cut rates and when it will kick it off. On the business side, something I wanted to point out or leave here is the question whether companies will invest in fresh capacity expansion in 2024, picking up the slack, so to speak, as government investments are set to slow down. The reason for this, as Crystal Chief Economist DK Joshi told me last week as well, is that capacity utilization is now over 75% in many cases, that's of companies, and even higher for some industries and some companies. Now, this is the point when usually fresh capacity investments kick in or are planned for. Now, the question is when and how. A report from Bank of Baroda Research using CMIE data, or CMI being Center for Monitoring Indian Economy data, to look at investment intentions, and CMI tracks that regularly, however, says that industry in general is still in a wait-and-watch mode. But guess one industry which is spending expansively and aggressively in capacity expansion. Guessed, yes, no, well, the answer is airlines which, if you look back at the headlines of 2023, is dominating both India and the world in many ways in terms of orders placed for fresh aircraft. So, some 49% of investment intentions are in the services sector, of which transport services contributes to 94% of the total being aviation, according to CMI data. Now, within manufacturing, which has a share of roughly 30%, chemicals and machinery and power, which also has a 21% share, are the industries or areas where investment intentions are going faster or moving ahead. The other aspect of government intentions is the ownership pattern. The share of government companies has now come down to about 21% from about 23% in 2022 or two years ago. The point here being that government's share in investments is slowly declining and is expected and has been projected by most economists to decline further in this year and the next. And therefore, everyone is wondering how and when, in which manner the private sector will pick up the slack. Meanwhile, Reuters reported on Wednesday that India's manufacturing industry ended 2023 on a slightly shaky footing as factory growth decelerated to an 18-month low in December thanks to a slower rise in new orders and output. The HSBC India Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index or PMI compiled by S&P Global fell to about 55% in December from November's 56%. Still, the reading was above the 50 mark, separating growth from contraction for a 30th straight month. That's more than two years. Back to markets now and currencies, the Indian rupee closed marginally higher on Wednesday, supported by dollar sales from foreign banks and even most of its Asian peers fell, pressured by a recovery in the U.S. dollar index, so basically a stronger dollar, Reuters reported the figures. The rupee ended at 83 rupees 27 paise against the dollar, slightly higher compared with its close of 83 rupees 31 paisae in the previous session. For everything, as we keep talking about here, the Federal Reserve's actions are a key signal. Not that you need much more uncertainty, but the certainty of a Fed rate cut is apparently now coming down in March, or rather for March. From 85% a week earlier to a near 75%, according to CME Group's Fed Watch tool, according to Reuters. Oil falls again. And our energy segment, supported by India Energy Week, and do brace yourself for the slightly extended energy section, fears of impact on oil prices, thanks to tensions in the Red Sea, which leads to the Suez Canal, a key gateway for ships, receded once again as oil prices slipped. West Texas intermediates swung in more than a $3 range to finally settle around $70 a barrel. Volumes, according to Bloomberg, have largely remained thin after the holiday season and therefore are yet to pick up because of which price movements are a little more accentuated. Crude rose earlier, as we mentioned yesterday, after Iran moved a warship to the Red Sea and many ships, mostly moving containers or crude or other goods, are rerouting from the Red Sea around South Africa and the Cape of Good Hope, but adding at least a week or more, and of course, costs. Back home, Union Petroleum Minister Hardeep Singh Puri on Wednesday said the reports of a proposed fuel price cut were speculative and mischievous. The speculation was pegged around the fact that there are upcoming general elections in April and May, and governments could or are expected to or hope to reduce prices ahead of that. He said in a briefing that he had already clarified that there was no such discussion with oil marketing companies on any such issue. Oil marketing companies include Indian Oil, Hindustan Petroleum and Bharat Petroleum and have made record profits in the first two quarters of the current financial year. However, pump prices across India have not changed for about 20 months now, despite crude prices falling. Mr. Puri said that the oil marketing companies need to make up for previous losses and defer to shareholder interest, the Economic Times reported. He also referred to the tensions in the Red Sea and cautioned that if there was an escalation, there could be an impact on prices. Four to eight percent of LNG or liquefied natural gas cargo went through this route in 2023 and about 8.2 million barrels per day of crude oil goes through this route. If God forbid there is a challenge, you can see the impact it will have, the minister said in a report quoted by the Hindustan Times. He also added that diesel prices have increased by 40 to 80 percent in neighboring countries in South Asia, but not in India. And finally, still sticking to energy, a word in exploration and search for new oil prospects in India. The ONGC or Oil and National Gas Commission has won seven areas for exploration of oil and gas while a consortium of Reliance Industries and British Petroleum walked away with one in a bid round for 10 blocks for exploration and production of oil and gas offered in a new round of bidding. Of the 10 blocks offered, ONGC won seven, Reliance BP won, one, oil India one, and Sun Petrochemicals won. Contracts for these blocks were signed on Wednesday morning, the government said. More on India's oil exploration prospects and what it really means or could mean, but that's later in the week. The energy segment was supported by India Energy Week to be held on February 6th. More details on www.IndiaEnergyWeek.com Sales of blood pressure monitors provide a glimpse into India's state of health. Healthcare has always been a large and growing market in India. Yet for a long time, hospital stocks, if you were to use that as a benchmark, never really performed well on the bosses. Now that has changed over time as the industry has itself got more institutionalized and transparent one reason and this is only one reason is the rise of insurance scheme like the government-run Ayushman Bharat earlier called the Rashtra Bima Yojana which covers about 500 million Indians with about five lakhs of insurance annually that's five lakh rupees now insurance obviously contributes to institutionalization and monitorable cash flows private insurance of course has grown too and So, as affordability in india earned amongst indians as incomes have risen and therefore the propensity to spend for better health care and of course private health care but the bigger change is obviously on the supply side as non-communicable diseases rise in india a government report india health of the nation states the india state-level disease burden initiative in 2017 by the indian council of medical research estimated that the proportion of deaths due to non-communicable diseases in india have increased from about 38 percent in 1990 to about 62% in 2016. Now, that of course is a few years back, but the proportion would only be higher today. The four major non-communicable diseases are cardiovascular diseases or CVDs, cancers, chronic respiratory diseases, and diabetes, which usually share four behavioral risk factors that's unhealthy diet, lack of physical activity, and use of tobacco and alcohol. The point, of course, is that while several million Indians, 4.5 is the figure that I have last, are dying from these diseases, more are suffering. India Spend reports that before the pandemic, ischemic heart disease was the leading cause of death in India, followed by chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder and stroke, according to the World Health Organization. Together, these three non-communicable diseases caused an estimated 226 deaths per 100,000 people in India in 2019. Diarrheal diseases, TB, and neonatal conditions caused about 112 deaths per 100,000 population. So very broadly, sedentary lifestyles and a lack of space for physical activity obviously drives up the number of cases of diabetes. Now figures which are more recent, in 2021, diabetes affected 101 million Indians and there are many who will not even know or perhaps have not tested. Cancer affected about 1.46 million people in 2022. Or you also have to remember, well, I talked about private insurance and insurance in general. For many people in India to get treatment, patients and their families have to sell assets and amass debt. Which brings me to testing and checking. More Indians are using devices and essentially finding means to test at home and or lean on diagnostics, both preventive and responsive. Omron Healthcare, the world's largest maker of home blood pressure monitoring devices, is stepping up capacity in India as the number of people suffering from hypertension increases with age and lifestyle changes. The Economic Times is reporting, quoting an interview with Tetsuya Yamada, Managing Director of the company in India, which sold 1.6 million devices in 2022, and it now obviously wants to expand. Yamada said that India has just 2% penetration of home blood pressure monitoring devices. And compared to Brazil, where there is a 20% penetration, Russia 30% and China about 25%. So these are pretty large parts of the population which clearly are using blood pressure monitoring devices going by what Omron is claiming. Omron has announced a production unit in Chennai, Tamil Nadu with an investment of about 128 crores. So home checking has obviously gone beyond, let's say, using what we know as traditional and affordable thermometers, including the digital ones. The new rage, of course, is real-time monitoring with patches and rings and so on, where you can see how various body functions, including blood sugar, are behaving. Personally, I find real-time a little intrusive, and I feel it makes us overconscious of our bodies and what is going on in them, and leading to potentially more stress than we perhaps started with. But the overall market for healthcare, whether testing through devices at home which would provide the early warning signals like in blood pressure, among others, or diagnostics or hospital care, will quite clearly grow in and expand quite rapidly in 2024. The Anglo-Saxon model of business schools does not quite pay heed to Indian family-run businesses and their structures. Before I come to family-run businesses, a small segue into company boards. An insightful article by my colleague Anjali Palod in www.thecore.in highlights how companies need to do more than perform lip service when it comes to the role of women directors in specific and independent directors in general. Indian Institute of Management Ahmedabad Professor Neharika Vora told my colleague how women often find themselves alone in boardrooms, undermining their contribution as they lack support and connection. Professor Vora argues that it should be at least two women mandated. Now, this might sound fair from a gender lens, but I'm not sure how that plays out from a pure corporate governance perspective and the matter definitely needs much more deliberation. Now, a recent case involving industrialist Gautam Singanya and his wife Nawaz Modi Singanya, who are seeking divorce, brought up the gender issue since Ms. Singanya was on the board of Raymond, the company Mr. Singanya predominantly owns and runs. While the divorce settlement would see shares being distributed, the independent directors on the board of Raymond came in for attack for being mere bystanders in a family-run business, which of course could be the case for many such directors and companies in India, in names we all know. Said weighing back, how are companies managing succession in India and are they doing the best for stakeholders of forcing their scions upon the company and their shareholders? There is no real evidence that they do, at least in hindsight, because many scions have turned out to be capable and effective. But equally, there are several signals of companies that are selling out even in the period that there is a transition being attempted. Pharmaceutical major CIPLA is one most recent and public example. So how are companies managing this and how effective are they in transitioning succession? I spoke with Farad Forbes, the global chair of the Family Business Network, headquartered in Lausanne, Switzerland. The 35-year-old FBN brings together 3,600 family businesses including about 5,000 next-generation members and operates out of 65 countries. I asked Mr. Forbes, who is also co-chairman of Pune-based engineering company Forbes Marshall, also a family-run business, if he were to take 10 business leaders of family businesses in India, how many would want to or would insist on the next generation staying within the company and running it, even though clearly, at least to outsiders, there is some sacrifice involved in performance, vision, delivery, and so on.
1: I mean, it's hard to sort of judge that, and I think you have to really go by the preparation of the specific family and the specific family business. If you look at overall family business performance, there are many studies which show that actually family businesses outperform non-family firms. Now, there must be a reason why that happens, right? This is over generations. I mean, you know, if you look at, firstly, Longevity, we talk about statistics like, you know, 13 percent of family businesses make it through the third generation. about two-thirds make it through the second generation. Now if you take one generation as 30 years, you're talking about two-thirds making it through 60 years, and 13 percent making it through 90 years. So there's obviously some value to what family businesses do. And in terms of performance, there are many studies which also show that family businesses do perform well, in many cases, actually outperform non-family businesses. So this happens because you have next generations who are entering the family business too. And whether they're entering the family business in day-to-day management or being involved, as I earlier said, in governance, on the boards, et cetera, but they're still involved, they're still significant shareholders. And they're actually influencing the direction of the business. So there are those methods of ways that the family the family can be involved. And I think many of these families you mentioned, I think, have that ability to influence the business successfully going forward. Right. So
0: you're also in some ways saying that there is a self-correcting mechanism and which is reflected in the final outcome or the data that you talked about. Because where I'm coming from is really the shareholder anxiety that one may see at this point. So if you take all the examples that I mentioned, as a shareholder, and if I'm a significant shareholder or an institutional shareholder, for example, and we saw it in the case of Reliance Industries, where the institutional investor advisory services presented a point of view that they were not comfortable with one of the uh, three children that were being taken on the board. Their point was that there was not enough experience and so on. And that was their recommendation, which of course didn't matter eventually, but that was definitely a point of view. And we're increasingly, thanks to institutional investor participation and uh, let's say their vocal uh, presence, we are seeing those points of view. So what's your sense? So if, let's say, as a shareholder, if I was not sure or I was anxious one is, of course, I put my foot down and vote whether or not that vote goes through. But the fact is that a concerned or a proactive business leader would address this more upfront than perhaps waiting for something, you know, like a bomb to land on the boardroom table, literally, and then try and defuse it.
1: No, well, I agree with you in the sense that I think these are things which have to be sort of worked in the background first. Firstly, the person has to be the right person where there is general consensus that the person is adequately prepared, that the person is actually right for the job if the person is going to be entering the business. And even as a board member, I think you need adequate preparation as a board member too. There has to be a lot of groundwork done ahead of time. And it cannot be just assumed that because the person is a family member that you automatically qualify. So I think, I think there is that responsibility and particularly when you have you know, outside shareholders uh, that you have to satisfy. But on the other hand, there is also some need for correcting perceptions that family members are not professional. And I think that's something which we have to do. Unfortunately, most of us go to business schools in the Anglo-Saxon world. And in the Anglo-Saxon world, Family business does not have necessarily an entirely positive image because it is actually you have examples of family businesses where things have gone wrong and it's always the the sad stories which make the headlines but actually what we really need to do better in family business uh, is actually provide a greater sense of advocacy for the good things that happen and I think that can change perceptions, can change perceptions of the media, change perceptions of the general public. And I think that's a job we need to do as well.
0: You can hear the full interview by clicking on the description below. Fidelity marks down Twitter investment by 72%. What Steve's Jobs have said... That those people who did not like his iPhone could go F themselves. Well, not evidently, or it does not appear to me, but actually, no CEO, at least in the media facing business or a consumer facing business whose bread, butter, cheese, and jam depends on advertisers, for instance, would tell them to go F themselves. And yet, Elon Musk did that in his now famous rant, among other famous rants, last month in New York. Anyway, Twitter, or now X, is now worth less than one third of what the billionaire paid for the company based on a recent estimate from investor Fidelity. It's the latest in a series of markdowns by Fidelity since Musk concluded the acquisition of the social media platform in October 2022, as the closely held company has struggled to hold on to advertisers and is also weighed down by $13 billion in debt, Bloomberg said. 2023's revenue from ad sales is expected to come in at about $2.5 billion. That's for the whole year, far below the prior rate of about a billion dollars per quarter or four billion dollars for the year, according to Bloomberg News. Fidelity said in a recent document that its current stake in X was worth about $5.6 million in November. That's down about 72% from the value of its stake at the time of takeover. That's it from me for today. Have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback@thecore.in and thank you once again for listening.